Thanks for joining me on Straight Talk. I'm Ashley Korslund in for Laurel Porter. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. It's a time to mourn the people lost to domestic violence and come together to create change in ending the crisis. Now recently in the Northwest, we have seen several high profile cases of domestic violence that end in tragedy. A mother and daughter were found dead in Washougal, the mother's former boyfriend charged with their murders. A woman strangled to death after her partner is bailed out of jail in Portland. A mother shot and killed in the parking lot of her kid's school. A family of five killed in a murder-suicide. But there are many, many more cases that never make the headlines. In fact, each year in Oregon, nearly 40% of women and 36% of men experience physical abuse, rape, or stalking from an intimate partner. The latest data from the Oregon Health Authority shows that 21 people were killed by an intimate partner in 2021, and three children were killed. Now, although domestic violence crosses barriers of race, class, and sexual orientation, marginalized communities face a higher risk. Black women face intimate partner violence at levels 35% higher than white women. 48% of immigrant Latinas in one study reported that their partner's violence against them had increased since they immigrated to the U.S. And 30 to 50% of transgender people experience intimate partner violence at some point in their lifetime. Today on Straight Talk, our guests are Kelly Harris, a mother whose daughter Kelsey died by suicide after she survived a domestic violence incident where she was strangled. Since her daughter's death, Kelly has become an advocate for domestic violence survivors. She successfully fought for new legislation to provide resources for crime victims in Oregon. We also have Savannah Powell, a forensic nurse examiner and researcher for Providence Medical Forensic Services. She cares for survivors of violence at Providence hospitals and is a nationally certified sexual assault nurse examiner. And we have Elizabeth McKeever, the education programs manager at Raphael House of Portland, who has worked in domestic violence advocacy for a decade now. And Raphael House offers immediate shelter services and a wide range of other supportive services for domestic violence survivors in Oregon. Now today we're going to talk about how to identify domestic violence and the resources available for people who need help. Thank you all for joining me to talk about this really important conversation today. Um, I would like to start with talking about what to look for when it comes to signs and signals of domestic violence. Elizabeth, we'll start with you because it can really take on different forms uh, and can often be overlooked. So what should people look for when it comes to the signs? Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. Sure. Um, uh, and so let's start with physical, I apologize. Sure, so yeah, absolutely. So I think physical abuse is the one that most people are familiar with. Sure. Um, it's certainly, I think, the first thing that comes to mind for folks when they talk about, you know, they think about domestic violence. Um, so, you know, these are things like pushing, slapping, um, you know, holding someone down, using objects as weapons against someone. Um, and then, of course, things like sexual abuse and rape. And emotional abuse is another big one that, that is talked about a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, emotional abuse, Use uh, can look like name calling, um, just really speaking uh, very negatively to someone, really trying to wear their confidence down. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, really as part of that too, um, isolation from social networks, so from folks in their lives who are supportive, um, that isolation is really key to um, sort of creating this dynamic of, of keeping someone in an abusive situation because they don't have those resources anymore. And you mentioned that social component. Talk mm -hmm. about social 
abuse specifically? What are some of those signs? Yeah, so I mean, we really think about community as sort of the antidote in so many ways mm -hmm. to domestic violence. So if you are controlling who someone can talk to or to see um, or saying, you know, um, you can't talk to the someone of, you know, the opposite sex or the sort of jealousy or, you know, accusations of cheating. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of ways that um, folks really end up feeling like um, I have no way out of this situation. And there's a lot of self-blame that comes into that too. People feel like I deserve this or I did something to provoke this. A last one I want to hit on today is financial abuse. Yes. That might be one that people might not identify mm -hmm. if they are being abused in that capacity. Talk about those um, warning signs there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, money is power, right? Sure. So um, what we see um, in financial abuse, and for folks that we serve at Raphael House, who are uh, especially folks who are in our shelter, the vast majority of people who come in have experienced financial abuse. That can look like not being allowed to work, um, not being able to keep their paycheck if they do work, um, or really just not having any awareness or control of finances at all. And unfortunately, what we see is people, when they sort of are in a point where they're getting away from that relationship and wanting to start over, that they find their credit is ruined or they have an eviction that had to do with the abuser that is now about barrier to housing for them. So very, very common and not talked about very much. Elizabeth, thank you for talking about those warning signs. Now, if you or someone you know is going through any of these things, maybe you identify with some of these um, warning signs and you'd like to get help, we would like to put up some numbers on your screen right now. We will also keep the National Domestic Violence Hotline number running at the bottom of the screen throughout the show. This is important. You can call or text that number again on your screen there, 1-800-799-7233. Uh, if you need it, we also have local numbers on your screen, a number specifically for children and one specifically for people who speak Spanish. So again, we'll keep that national number up on the bottom of your screen. I'd like to talk about the scope of the problem now. We did mention some of the higher profile cases in recent years in our area, but there are of course a lot that don't make the headlines. So Savannah and Elizabeth, uh, you both really see this problem firsthand. Let's talk Talk about how big of a problem domestic violence is in the community. Um, Elizabeth, let's start with you and then we'll go to Savannah. Sure. I mean, we know that this is a massive public health issue. Um, it is very common. It is absolutely, uh, you know someone who is a survivor or has been a victim. Um, everyone does. Um, so I would believe the most recent statistics are sort of two in five women and one in four men mm -hmm. will um, identify having had this experience at some point in their lifetime. And Savannah, I love you to weigh in on this as well. Yeah, so I see a lot of patients when they are at the point where they're severely physically abused, mm -hmm. and that's when they do come into the hospital. Um, unfortunately, it's really only um, 5% of people who come to the hospital and seek medical care um, after an event like a strangulation um, within the first 48 hours. And so we're actually seeing less people in the hospital than we know exists in our community. Um, with that, we are still very busy. We are still seeing people all of the time for domestic violence and strangulation. That's just awful. And Kelly, I'd like to bring you in here. Thank you, by the way, for being here. I know this has got to be really tough to talk about because you lost your daughter, Kelsey, after she was the victim of domestic violence. Share a little bit about her story if you feel comfortable with that. Certainly. Um, well, in fact, um, today it's been two and a half years since mm. she died. Sorry. And the week before she died, um, we found out uh, actually through a friend who called us to tell us that uh, she had been strangled and assaulted and she'd been um, interviewed by the police. The police had arrested and uh, 
uh, taken her abusive boyfriend um, to jail and charged him. Uh, and then she was taken to a local hospital in Lebanon. Uh, she was examined. Uh, her medical records show that she uh, was, in fact, um, not only assaulted but strangled. Uh, they also uh, indicated that she had said she feared for her life and that she feared for the life of her dogs. She had two beautiful dogs. Uh, and we didn't find out about any of this until this friend called us probably 48 hours later and we were in total, total shock. Um, this was a guy that had been in our house that they'd been going out for almost three years. Wow. We thought this was gonna be our future son-in-law. Mm. And I, my husband and I just didn't know what to say. Uh, Kelsey called us about a day later uh, and explained what had happened, reiterated the story, uh, and said that, I said, you've got to come home. You, you've got to come home. You're not safe there. And she said, no, mom. She said, um, you know, COVID is starting to open up. Um, you know, she was a coach at Lebanon High School, uh, a JV soccer coach and a varsity tennis coach. She said, the teams are going to start practicing. I've got to be there for them. I've signed contracts. You know, um, this is my way to get back into things. Mm -hmm. uh, she'd lost her job because of COVID. Yeah. Uh, and um, she was just so anxious to get back with her girls, um, her team. And uh, that was the last time we talked to her. Looking back, Kelly, was there anything um, that you think could have changed the outcome as far as maybe resources for her or, you know, access to, to resources? Well, first of all, uh, when she went to the hospital, uh, she was never told nor forwarded to a sexual assault um, center right in Albany uh, called Sarah's Place. Uh, she was not take, there was no diagnostic text, test taken, uh, even though she admitted and was diagnosed as having been strangled. Um, no MRIs, no CT scans, nothing to see any internal damage. Uh, she was given a sedative and sent home. And uh, you know this was this is ridiculous. I mean, there should have been much more um, follow up. There was absolutely no calls from the hospital afterwards. I have found no record of anybody reaching out to her after that happened. You have gone on to champion for legislation that expanded resources for crime victims, and that is House Bill 2676. Mm -hmm. uh, part of that was expanding access to strangulation kits. Can you talk about? what those are and how they would have helped, for example, in your daughter's case? Well, actually, Savannah's the expert in that realm. I'll, I'll <laughs> let her speak to that. Sure. But uh, it was my understanding that strangulation kits, even though they were invented or introduced in that year, 2021, they were not available in Lynn County. Uh, so, uh, but, but Savannah and her team of SANE nurses are very skilled in administering those and they can make all the difference. Yeah, Savannah, why don't you talk about that? Um, how do they help you treat patients who have been strangled specifically? Absolutely, so the strangulation kits are very similar to um, a sexual assault forensic exam or a rape kit. Um, it comes with basically two things, documentation as well as um, forensic evidence collection. Um, you don't have to have the forensic evidence collected in order to still do the documentation, um, but these kits um, help gather the information when it comes to um, injury documentation, uh, their symptoms that they have, how long they were strangled, how they were strangled, um, and then the evidence collection and where they collect the evidence um, really, really assists patients to get justice um, because nurses and doctors and emergency rooms, they do an incredible job um, 
taking care of patients, but they're not specialized to understand the needs of a strangulation patient, as well as um, the types of symptoms and things to look out for specific to someone who has been strangled. And why specifically strangulation, why is that such a red flag when it really comes to um, you know, identifying domestic violence cases? Yeah, so um, if a person is strangled in their intimate partner relationship, there's um, a study that shows that they are seven times more likely to be uh, victims of homicide. Um, and so we want to get in and um, talk to the patient. We do also what is called a danger assessment that assesses the lethality of their relationship um, so that they can take that information and understand um, how dangerous their, their situation is. Um, we don't ever you know, tell someone they have to leave or anything like that, but we do support them through um, resources and, and letting them know um, their situation is pretty dire. You actually, Savannah, brought me to my next question. I wanted to ask to Elizabeth, and we do, you do hear that from people as, uh, why don't you just leave? Leave your partner. If they're abusing, leave. It should be simple, right? That's, that's the question we hear. Why is that um, dangerous or a dangerous phrase, especially when it comes to when people do leave an abusive partner, it is dangerous for them to do that. Absolutely, it's the most dangerous time. If we think about, which we do, domestic violence as uh, being about power and control, if someone is about to leave, they that, that abusive person is about to lose control over that person, so things tend to escalate. Um, it is not easy to pick up your life and leave. Um, people have community supports, they have jobs, they have families. Um, so it's very, uh, there are a lot of barriers. So even if folks uh, do want to leave, then there are, you know, do I want a shelter? Our shelters are always full. Yep. Um, do I uh, have someone else who like can really listen to me and really support me and not victim blame, which that statement of why don't they just leave is a victim blaming statement. We like to reframe that. Exactly. Right. We like to reframe that as why doesn't the abusive person stop what they're doing? Sure. And you touched on resources here because it really is an issue. You're talking transportation, um, money, housing, oftentimes childcare. Yeah comes into play. It's not so simple to just leave the home you're in. Let's talk resources, um, you know, housing, all of those things I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. What is available, when, especially if there is not a shelter immediately there? Right. Yes. Um, so hopefully if folks are looking for shelter, if they happen to look into a bed being available when they need it, that's wonderful. Um, sometimes we're able to bridge folks from a situation um, into a motel until a shelter bed can open up um, or really just talk with folks and think about what are who are the resources, who are the people in your life who maybe you can go to for even just a little bit of time so that you can figure out sort of what's next for yourself. You know, as we mentioned at the top of the show, BIPOC and LGBTQ people face disproportionate levels of domestic violence. Is there any specific resources any of you would like to point out, Elizabeth, um, when it comes to that often marginalized communities? Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, we can't under, you know, we can't underestimate the, the power of culturally specific services. Sure. Um, there are a number of them in the area um, that are, um, so if you are a Latina, um, uh, if you are a member of the black community, um, there are places where if you are in the queer community who are really well placed to help you and, and really understand the specific um, the specific needs and the specific barriers that those populations face. Right. When we come back, we're going to talk about going through the legal system as a domestic violence victim. We're back in two minutes. And welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Ashley Korslin in for Laurel Porter. We're talking today about domestic violence and what resources are available to people as they find themselves navigating a scary time. 
First of all, if you are in an abusive situation and you need help now, here is a list of phone numbers that you can call to get support. You can call or text the national hotline or if you need it, we do have local numbers, uh, one specifically for children and one specifically for people who speak Spanish. Now our guests today are Kelly Harris, a mom who became an advocate for domestic violence victims after the death of her daughter, Kelsey. Savannah Powell is a forensic nurse examiner at Providence and Elizabeth McKeever is the education programs manager at Raphael House of Portland, which provides shelter and domestic support, or support rather for domestic violence survivors. Elizabeth, I wanna talk to you about this first is oftentimes we think that um, you know victims might go immediately to law enforcement and that is not always the case people might be very reticent to report it to law enforcement why is that sure I mean I think it's a really intimidating thing to go to the police um, what we know about survivors interacting with all the different sort of justice systems is that they often do not feel heard or seen and really what happens after that report is made really is out of their hands at that point. Mm -hmm. And domestic violence is such an experience of being disempowered mm -hmm. and going into these systems and sort of having someone tell you, well, no, this is how this is gonna go now, um, does not really feel helpful for folks often. And Kelly, your daughter, uh, you had found out your daughter hadn't reported that initially as well. No, in fact, um, after her death, we found out she'd actually been involved in two different abusive relationships, mm -hmm. neither of which she reported. And as a result, um, I, we found also that in both cases, the father of the abuser had been involved in the relationship and had threatened her. And in both cases, those men threatened her in the sense that they said they would either put down her dog who had attacked her initial abuser or that they would sue her because she was going to take the dogs with her and anybody that knew my daughter knew that she loved animals and uh, she was even reticent about leaving the house of her last abuser because she was worried her abuser would come after her dogs and she didn't think she could find a place to take her dogs with her and I've since found out that there are safe homes like Raphael House mm -hmm. that will allow victims to come with their, their animals and I think that's really, really important um, because abusers will go after family pets. That is such a manipulation tactic exactly. that really does connect emotionally to the victim. The, the key here is if women don't report these, I, I have a saying and I've probably heard it somewhere, if it doesn't get reported, it gets repeated. And I think that's really, really crucial for women to understand is that that gives the power to the abuser to continue doing what he's doing to them or to other women. And once it's reported, it, it's a difficult thing for them to go through, but it needs to be filed, it needs to be on record, because whether it happens to them or another woman in the future, um, you've got to protect yourself and you've got to protect others. And if someone is arrested and charged, let's say with domestic violence, Elizabeth, um, oftentimes no contact orders will be issued. Are those helpful? Do they often um, prove to be fruitful for the victim? They can be a helpful tool. Um, a lot of survivors um, are uh, don't really like them because sometimes they feel like it can actually escalate the violence that they're mm -hmm. experiencing because that person has really been sort of, you know, oh, you you've got you're sending people after me now right so it can get worse um, ultimately although you know sometimes they work they are at the end of the day a piece of paper mm -hmm. and you know you're relying on a, a police response if there is an incident that happens and sometimes that doesn't happen or there's a delay um, and so you know it can it can be helpful but not always it's not perfect and Savannah in a hospital setting have you seen instances where um, you know the abuser will violate that no contact order in the medical setting even yes um, we have seen that we we see 
A lot of patients, we see a lot of repeat patients actually, and a lot of times um, they may have the contact order um, and then they go through and they, they want to go back to their partner. Something I tell my patients all the time um, and talk to my patients all the time is like, we understand like they may be really great. Um, we understand that this is a cycle and that you know they, um, they will give them a lot of love and a lot of compassion in between these abusive um, um, scenarios. Um, and so I, I can validate that they do maybe want to stay in a relationship, they just want to be in a relationship that's not hurtful to them. Sure. Um, but ultimately they you know are come back and we've had patients who um, have had multiple strangulations to the point where they have brain damage um, and they are isolated and, and they don't have anywhere else to go um, patients who they have to go back because that's the only roof over their heads that they have at that time um, and and that's why they return there's many reasons why they return um, but yes the no contact order is definitely violated at times we try to keep at the hospital patients as um, safe as possible um, from their abusers um, but of course when we discharge we don't have any no control, control over that, that point. Mm -hmm. right now when it comes to the court system what sorts of resources are available to a victim at that point. Elizabeth, do you want to take this one? Um, if folks are connected to the different domestic violence agencies that are out there, um, advocacy is something that we do, so we will accompany folks to court to really be that additional support. Um, there are also organizations that specifically provide legal services for folks who have experienced domestic violence and sexual assault. Is it hard to get these um, cases prosecuted? I mean, are, you hear oftentimes of charges being dropped mm -hmm. or, or lessened. Yes. at the least. What, what's your experience been with that? Yeah, um, you know, it's it's a mixed bag. Um, and folks don't always, you know, survivors don't always get uh, out of those systems what they're hoping for in the end. So part of that advocacy is also sometimes managing expectations of, you know, we don't know what the outcome is going to be necessarily. And Kelly, it was tough for prosecutors to charge your daughter's abuser. Tell us what happened in that case. Uh, basically, uh, you know, the minute she died, um, they dropped it. Um, and they told me they couldn't pursue it because her abuser had um, you know basically refused to make a statement and that she was dead and therefore she couldn't go to court to um, prove that he'd done what he'd done and um, for the last two and a half years I have been advocating and asking and begging and pleading and emailing and calling and saying you there's got to be more look at what I found on her Instagram look at what I found on her Facebook look at what I found in her email you know again and again and again and they keep telling me oh that's not admissible in court that's not mm -hmm. admissible in court and it's gotten to the point where um, I really feel like the criminal justice system has to step back and say, you know, are, are we favoring the criminal in all of this? Uh, but one of the things that is a bright hope is uh, these, um, these DNA-based testing um, units, these strangulation kits, these rape kits, because now all of a sudden um, there's a fighting chance for these women in court. Uh, if they can't visibly show that, for example, in a strangulation like my daughter's, she didn't have visible bruises, but if she had been a administered a, a strangulation kit, these are the kinds of things that would have made a difference. We need a statewide response so that all of the counties in Oregon can have access to these tools. Right now only 11 out of, of 36 counties in Oregon are even have strangulation kits 
or and or nurses uh, that have uh, these, uh, you know, the training or the doctors or the hospitals uh, to do this sort of thing. And, and, you know, this is going on every day in every county. And there are girls and women that are, you know, basically victims with no um, help. And uh, in this day and age, with the scientific technology we've got, um, we've got to make changes. And so, you know, from that standpoint, this is a step. This is a hope. This is a fighting chance in court. Elizabeth, I'm going to let you have the last word here. Any changes you'd like to see done in the future or advice to people to spot abuse in their life? You know, I think if you are lucky enough to have someone trust you to share their story with them, it is incredibly important to really just sit with that, tell them, I believe you, it is not your fault, and tell me how I can be best supportive to you. All right, well, thank you all so much. I know a very um, tough subject, but very important. You've all really shed a light on a really important conversation that we need to all be having collectively. So thank you for being here, and thank you for joining us here on Straight Talk. Next week, we're talking with the Cannabis Industry Alliance of Oregon about the state of the cannabis economy. Have a great week and thanks for joining us.